Hello, yes, it's Manifesto Week. The excitement never ends, but the good news is we have read the manifestos, so you don't have to. Elements of that may not be true. Also in this week's programme, an exciting star guest. Men and women fought and died for us to have democracy in Britain, and they're fighting and dying around the world to try and get democracy. Get out there, use your vote. It's the only thing that changes anything. Eddie Izzard, on his hopes for a Labour win in this election and his prospects of possibly being mayor or an MP at the next one. So first of all, if this was March, and if this was a commercial, we'd call this March Manifesto Madness. But it isn't, so that alliterative joy is something we will be spared. But this is Manifesto Week. They've decided that the one thing we all need is to have all the manifestos come out within the space of about three days. And in an extraordinary break from tradition, we are not uniting the two big powerhouses of our country, because Robert Meakin is with me in the same room in London. I've come to the city of sin. Right, manifestos. Are we interested anymore? These things matter? I don't think they matter to many people beyond political correspondents and political nerds watching these things late on at news night. I don't, I mean, I think it's more the impression they give. I think it's you know, how does the leader present himself or herself on a particular day. They're very much dealing in broad brushstrokes. People get lost in the detail very, very quickly. How much detail has there been, for argument's sake, from the Conservatives and the Labour Party over the last couple of days. I don't think it, it, it really computes for a lot of people, to be brutally honest. And we knew pretty much everything that was in these. It's not yeah. like it's not like Ed Miliband stood up and produced some sort of rabbit from his hat and said, there's this amazing policy I never knew, you never knew this was coming. We knew all of this. I, I'm trying to count the number of surprises in these manifestos. Yeah. They, I mean, you, you could argue... With Ed Miliband, it was what he was trying to do was say, we are still the most morally just party, but I tell you what, we will back it up with economic competence, which is seen as their Achilles heel. The Conservative side is essentially, we're not just the bad guys looking out for the wealthy, as our opponents say, we're now on the side of hard-working people, that old phrase. And they seem to be the two key arguments on either side, because they're both the Achilles heel for both. The Tories being remote from that sort of generation of people, the Labour, of course, not being considered economically competent, trying to lose those tags. So David Cameron stands up and says, I am the man for the hard-working person. If you mm. are a hard-working family, you, you need the Tories on your side. Ed Miliband stands up and says, we are the party of fiscal rectitude, not like this shower, mm. the Tories with their wild, unfunded promises, just throwing money they don't have at things. How did we get to this the, position? That is mid-election madness, isn't it? The I think they, we have they've, they've, swapped, they've swapped clothes briefly. It was as if they bumped into each other at a railway station and dropped each other's speeches <laughs> in a puddle and, uh, and picked up the wrong one. They've got on the wrong train. And then by the, the time they realised, it was too late. They had to commit to it. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it is wonderful to hear... Labour saying that the, all these unspecified uh, uh, spending claims being made by a Tory Chancellor. I mean, as, as you say, it's a complete turnaround from what is normally the case. It's been entertaining having to watch a flustered Ed Miliband and Ed Balls deal with this nonsense because George Osborne, of course, is promising the world presently without bothering to cost it because he knows he doesn't really have to at this stage of the game. No one would listen anyway. But as you say, it's been a, a fascinating and bizarre role reversal. But there is this thing. How much do these manifestos matter? The civil service used to take this very seriously. In days gone by, they would pore over these manifestos and they would work out 
how on day one after the election you could present to an incoming Tory or Labour minister this is how we will implement what is in your manifesto. Now, although they are officially the programmes for government of all of these parties, what they really are is bargaining positions for the inevitable negotiations that are going to follow an indecisive election result. Well, that, that again negates obviously the importance of these things in the first place because most people know that we aren't going to have a majority government at the end. And so all these, again, are a very broad brushstroke of what each party wants to do. Well, I'm sorry, the whole likelihood is that you're not going to be able to do a good deal of them anyway, however, even if you come out on top. So again, I think that makes these things, to put it politely, rather symbolic rather than significant. I mean, you'll never get them to do this, but in a way it would be nice if you could get them to do this in order of priority mm -hmm. and say, here are our top three. These are the things that we absolutely will not compromise on. These are the things we'd like to do if we could, but these are the ones that we will not compromise on. And the only ones who've done that so far that I can see are the SNP, who yes. said they won't support the Conservatives and they won't vote for Trident. Mm. And Nick Clegg has now said that he won't work with the Tories if they want this £12 billion in cuts mm. to welfare. But that, and that's all well and good, but of course the two people who could be Prime Minister quite sensibly are not going to go down that road of giving such firm conditions because they simply cannot afford to. If you're David Cameron with the potential of having to deal with UKIP, Liberal Democrats, DUP, if you're Ed Miliband, possibly having to deal with the, the, the SNP, Lib Dems, etc. You're not, you cannot start you know, putting up iron doors at this stage if you're those two guys, because one of those is actually going to be the one trying to seal a deal to be Prime Minister. I spoke to one uh, fairly senior Labour figure um, earlier in the week who said to me, I think we're doing this wrong. So between you and me, I think we're doing this wrong. We should have gone much harder on standing up for working people. We should have mm -hmm. said that we we're going to spend more money. We were going to up the minimum wage, get it up to the living wage. We were going to do more to address the problems of poorer people and mark ourselves out as different. He said, we used to think that if we got 35%, we could just about crawl over the line and get a majority. Mm. Now we're stuck at about 33%. Mm. Poll rating's falling, but we've convinced ourselves that that's okay because we'll be able to cobble together some sort of anti-Tory coalition after the election. Yes, I think yeah, the Labour, Labour Party have been accused for some time of not being particularly ambitious and thinking exactly that, that they could just stagger into the early 30s and have enough goodwill behind them from the other parties. I think, to be fair, I think Miliband is having a, a decent campaign. So His confidence. I think, I think, yeah, it has, it, he has exceeded expectations. And it is almost a repeat, you could say, of the 2010 Labour leadership contest. I was thinking today, watching him uh, with, making his manifesto speech, that he just... I think he seem, he does he does seem to rise to the challenge to a degree, and it comes into his own when the when when the stakes are really really high. And so I think to on, but the the good part of Labour's campaign so far, is not particularly on the policy side, has been the leader has stepped up because he's been considered the weakness today. Maybe still a long road to go because he's got a long way to climb because expectations of him were exceedingly low. But the other thing that, that occurs to me, you know, during his, his manifesto launch speech, he did this thing, and I'm sure it was very carefully worked out, where he said over and over again, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yes. I'm ready to be prime. The problem is when you're three weeks out from a general election and you've been party leader for five years mm -hmm. and you're still having to convince people yeah. that you're ready to do that job. Yeah. It's a demonstration of how deep the personality problem is for a lot of voters. Yes, and as you say, although even some of the more right-wing press are having to sort of reluctantly acknowledge that he's had a decent campaign so far, I think the consensus is 
that the Conservatives are still relying on the fact that Miliband is considered significantly weaker as an authority figure than David Cameron is, even if people, a percentage of people don't necessarily like David Cameron, there's still that basic perception that he's the prime ministerial presidential figure and Miliband isn't. But I think he's chipped away at that these, uh, these last, this last couple of weeks. And right now, I think it would be just history suggests maybe it's, it's unwise to underestimate Miliband just because what he's achieved getting the Labour leadership in the first place. He managed to achieve uh, a laugh at the, at the Labour manifesto launched by uh, dubbing the Lib Dem leader Calamity Clegg, yes. specifically in reference to the tuition fees. Labour going to cut it to 6000 if they get in, criticising the Lib Dems. And, and, and Nick Clegg had one of his big interviews, sit down with Evan Davis this week for the BBC. And in that, and in a lot of other interviews, you can just sense that he's really had enough of talking about tuition fees now, yeah. hasn't he? And he does the apology, but he's now got a massive list up his sleeve of the 20 things oh, yeah. the Lib Dems have done. But he's getting tetchy, isn't he? He's getting tetchy. Literally. And the strategy with Clegg, I think, a good while back, because the support had inevitably collapsed for the party, he's been out there, not just doing this election campaign, he's been pushing himself out there for the last three years. He does his radio phone-in every week, gets a heck of a lot of flack on that, defends his record every week. I think... Right now, I say his campaign has been going probably longer than anyone's in terms of an individual politician. It's an unenviable task he has to keep on trying to remind people of the accomplishments of the Lib Dems and the Coalition. As soon as he starts saying them, the ears go, uh, ears shut largely. It's very difficult. Pete, it's far easier to remember the one betrayal. It reminds me of Tony Blair's third election campaign, 2005, yeah. when the strategy they came up with was he basically had to go out and get a kicking from all the people who by that point mm. were tired of him, particularly angry over the Iraq war. He had to sit down and do the TV interviews with the relatives of people who died in yes, Iraq, with yes. the, the anti-war protesters, had to take all the questions about where the weapons of mass destruction had gone, had to have a kicking, yes, yes. a public kicking, to show that he'd had his punishment in order to stand for election the third time. And you kind of feel like Nick Clegg's having to do this. He's having to go out there and yeah, get a bit of a kicking over tuition fees, a bit of a kicking from the left-leaning side of his party, ah. who still haven't really forgiven him for, for propping up the Conservatives, in the hope of winning some of them over. Yes, and he, I mean, he inevitably, quite rightly, is talking, saying we're not going to get the, the savaging that people imagined we, we could do significantly better. They are pinning their hopes on the fact that they've got some pretty strong constituency MPs who may be considered constituency MPs first and Lib Dem second, and they're praying that that might at least hold up a decent percentage of the vote, but... It's still hard to imagine it's going to be anything but a, a pretty desperate night for them. What I thought was interesting about the Green Party launch was it was almost like they had joint leaders. It was mm. Natalie Bennett side by side with Caroline Lucas. Now, go back to before the campaign, there was this stuff about would Caroline do one of the debates? Would you? Mm. And Natalie Bennett kept saying, no, 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 I'm the leader. I'm the, I'm the face of this party. And you know what? They're both the face of this party. There you are. Uh, do they feel they need to do that because Natalie Bennett's not done brilliantly? She's had an obviously had an uncertain campaign so far. People smell the blood, essentially. The, 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 the alpha male, the old-fashioned alpha male interviewers, the John Humphreys, the Andrew Neils of this world, know about that calamity of an interview she had with Nick Ferrari on the radio. And once that's happened and you've unraveled that much live on air, I'm sorry, there is a mark on you. And ever since then, every time she appears, you think, oh, goodness, is it going to... 
happen again. Uh, I know even John Humphreys the other day mistakenly called her Caroline Lucas at the end of the interview, which pretty sums up. I mean, you've got Ed Miliband being called David Miliband, and Natalie Bennett's called Caroline Lucas. And then, and then there's UKIP. Nigel Farage said the last manifesto was rubbish, yes. and he hadn't read it, and he'd thrown it in the bin. Yeah. They seem to have got through quite a few manifesto writers, um, quite a lot of delays in getting to the point. But, you know, they got there. They've, oh. they've got a manifesto now. It's out there. Well, you try asking you know, your average UKIP supporter what the UKIP manifesto is, and obviously the vast majority won't know. Ask the vast majority of UKIP members... MEPs, frankly, what the UKIP manifesto is and the vast majority won't know. And you know what? It actually isn't all that important in terms of the vote they're going to get. And Farage is savvy enough to know that. Again, they are, they are a party that's ridden this wave. They know, they know where they can potentially get votes. They know what their target is, namely to come second in a number of seats and set up a platform for next time. To be honest, UKIP aren't strong on the details because the details aren't important presently. Here we are, episode three, and I'll be honest with you, we are thrilled. It has taken almost no time at all to attract a big star guest. Kind of. Here's what's actually happened. The Labour Party is trying to use the power of celebrity to win some key target seats, especially in London. I'm in London and got a phone call asking if I'd like to pop down to Finchley, which is one of their big target seats, where a big celebrity will be there to back the candidate. Now, this is Margaret Thatcher's old stomping ground. The Finchley and Golders Green seat was won by the Tories in 2010. Sarah Sackman is the candidate for Labour this time, and she's had a boost from a fairly well-known activist. My name is Eddie Izzard and I'm uh, running for uh, Member of Parliament or Mayor of London in, in five years. I've been an activist since 2008 elections, so I get out there, I encourage people to support the Labour Party. Uh, I believe in fairness, I believe in wealth creation and a safety net, and I think uh, you get a fairer society under Labour. So I'm encouraging people to vote for Sarah here in Finchley uh, and Golders Green. And she'll be the first woman MP since a previous woman MP who did some things some years ago back in the 80s who I didn't agree with politically. And it's a mark of perhaps how things change politically. This was Margaret Thatcher's stomping ground for yeah. many years. Sarah, let me ask you, do you think you are going to be the next MP here? It's going to be one of the closest races anywhere in the country in Finchley and Golders Green. We've seen over the last five years a shift uh, towards Labour. We're getting lots and lots of support from people right across the constituency, people who want to see better public services and a fairer, more equal community. And I think that puts us in really within spitting distance of taking this seat back within one term. Well, it's more neck and neck nationally, but it's still everything to play for. Um, trying to bring back uh, a Labour government after one term is a really tricky thing to do. I think Ed Meliband has done a great job in doing this. He's fighting like crazy. You've got a right-wing press that really likes to spin things against him. They'll throw everything in the kitchen sink at him. But he's, we just got to fight our way through. Our ground war is always good. The, the Labour Party supporters, the activists, they get out there, they knock on doors, they talk to people. Four million conversations. If you remember the 2010 election, the, we were supposed to lose the kitchen sink. But in fact, we only got 50 seats less than the Tories. With all that money going in and all that effort and all the right-wing press going, oh, please vote for the Tory party. It's going to be interesting. There's, uh, there's other parties involved as well. How would you feel if the only way for Ed Miliband to get into Downing Street was to do a deal with the Scottish Nationalists? Well, 
I must admit, I'm not encyclopedic on the moves of hung parliaments. I don't really, I, it would be, it would be crazy for me to say I know the exact moves to do then. There are going to be people who will know the numbers and the because it'll be, it'll be numbers, won't it? It'll be how much more of a majority do we have, how many of uh, the Scottish nationalists got, how many has everyone else got. So I don't think I can really comment on that saying that I would rather us win a full majority and if not, let's do the best thing that we can. But I'm not the expert. Well, you say you're not an expert. That was a perfect politician's answer. Well, I am a diplomat. I, my, the only time I was ever elected was head of the Street Performers Association. The street Performers are a bunch of individuals, the most radical individuals you'll ever meet. And I was their first head of the Street Performers Association back in the 80s. So I do like people, but I do understand we're trying to get everyone to work together. I do come up with different ideas and do things in a very positive way. The number of people on the electoral roll has dropped quite a bit. I mean, some constituencies by enough to perhaps swing the outcome of the result one way or another? Well, it does. I mean, I heard about a million people came off the electoral register um, because the, and the Tories changed the system. And I don't know quite why they changed the system, but whether they were hoping and we'll knock a million people off and, and we can say we're doing nice things, but in fact they're trying to knock off Labour Party voters. So I would encourage people to get registered just because people should use their vote. Men and women fought and died for us to have democracy in Britain, and they're fighting and dying around the world to try and get democracy. So do get registered. you just got to Google um, getting registered, UK elections, and that should bring it all up. And it's apparently not that hard. Get out there, use your vote. It's it's the only thing that changes anything. And so what we should be looking for is Eddie Izzard, Mayor of London 2020, or Eddie no. Izzard MP? It's, it's Member of Parliament. You'll know how complex it is working out who's going to get in and who's going to... It depends who wins on May the 7th, blah, 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 blah. So I'm happy to be a Member of Parliament or a Mayor of London uh, in, if people vote for me and if I get the nomination. So I've got a whole bunch of hurdles to get through first. Would you still talk? No, I can't. I would have to uh, put my career into hibernation. Might that not put some of your supporters off voting for you? Why would they not vote because of that? Because they wouldn't get to come and see you on tour. No, I don't think that's how it works. I think they're actually, hopefully, looking at my life and thinking I play with a fairly straight bat, even though I'm not good at cricket. I do understand the principle of the straight bat. I've tried to play with straight bat. I've tried to be, I've tried to be consistent with what I think. I'm inclusionist, positive. I want everyone to do well. I want myself to do well as well. You know. And uh, so I'm an aspirational person, and I've done pretty well, and I've worked my backside off. My backside has come off actually doing all this work. So, uh, but now I just want to take it into politics and see if I can do anything positive in there. All right, so Robert, first of all, Eddie Izzard, Mayor of London, 2020. Yeah, there could be a technical hitch there, because if Labour do win the London mayor election next year with, say, Tessa Jowell or a David Lammy, said Tessa Jell or David Lammy might fancy standing again in it's 2020 possible. As, 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 as Labour Mayor. So the idea of Eddie is I'm just riding into the town saying, aside. I'll save you now, I'm here everybody. I'm not sure that might hold up when it comes to the nitty gritty. But he also said, you know, willing willing to go for a parliamentary mm. seat. Um, that, that's perhaps more realistic. Possibly more realistic, I, I would imagine. And look, Glenda Jackson was an MP for the Labour Party for, for she was. donkey's years. She so was. There's, there's no, yeah. in that respect, there's no logical reason why he couldn't do it. I always, it was always, for a long time when he pitched the whole mayoral thing, it was always going to be 2020 and there was always an obvious glitch in that plan. Yes, yes. Well, it's not, it's not perfectly rounded. It, basically, it works if Labour don't win yes. the next mayoral election, yes. which is an odd thing for a Labour activist to be hoping for. When essentially Labour right now 
be considered probably favourites in some form, you know, maybe to win the next London mayor election, it would seem a bit of a punt. Now, no, part. no sooner had I finished speaking to Eddie Izzard in Finchley, um, I was on the bus heading home when I see on Twitter pictures of him in Hendon. He was being marched mm. around all of these London target constituencies, bit of bit of stardust on the campaign, local press, idiots like me popping down to have their picture taken with him. To give a serious interview. Sorry, no, to have doing. a serious interview. No, yeah, just stargazing. I wasn't starstruck <laughs> in any way. Does it work? Does does a celebrity endorsement for a political party does that actually work? Oh, I wasn't sure what to do. But if uh, I like Eddie Izzard, he's funny and he's Labour, so uh, that's my decision made. In a word, no. I, I, rem- I remember as a, as a kid when another famous comedian, one John Cleese, would be doing part of political broadcast, what was then the SDP Liberal Alliance and the Liberal Democrats. People people watching it think this is an hilarious performance, I think, which it was at the time. It was kind of, I'm not sure if time would have been kind to it, but it seemed funny in 1987. Of course, it had no effect at all on the campaign. I don't think celebrities uh, endorsing political parties has any real meaningful influence on proceedings at all. Most celebrities, when they get involved in politics, to be brutally honest, speak in very broad brushstroke terms, you know, they're not they're not ones for detail. I think that may have been displayed in some of Eddie's. The, well, when I asked Eddie's him that question about the SNP, and he was saying how much he wanted a Labour government, I said, well, you know, as, you, as we heard, yeah. what if the only way to do that was to do a deal with the SNP? And you could see in his eyes, he was thinking, I can't say something here that isn't uh, doesn't stick to the party plan. Party, what's the party plan? We're not doing a coalition. We haven't ruled anything else out, though. Uh, I'll just say the usual answer. I'm hoping for a Labour majority government. And we're talking about one of the greatest improvisers in the world. Yes. A man who can go on stage and create a whole tapestry for you when he's a comedian. And I would have to say I do go, and not everyone will agree, but I go to the old-fashioned view. If you're a brilliant live performer, a brilliant comedian, actor... Maybe that's where your destiny lies rather yeah. than politics. The, but I could be, uh, people may shoot me down for that. The know. chuckles tend to be more accidental in the House of Commons than deliberate. You don't, you don't leave the gaps for the laugh. No, the, the, the politicians who are considered comedians in the House of Commons, as you say, are the ones who haven't necessarily wanted that type. Proper comedians trying to become serious politicians is a fairly hazardous road, I, I would suggest. And as an admirer of... Of Izzard as a performer, I, I'm a, I just love the view. I, just, I wish he would just do more of that. I don't think he has much to offer as a political figure. There have been less successful celebrity endorsements. Mm. I refer you to Kenny Everett, yes. at the Conservative Party conference, saying, "Let's bomb Russia." Yeah. Followed by, "Let's kick Michael Ford's stick away." That's right. I do remember that one. You just give me an alarming flashback. Yeah, Kenny Everett, high-profile Tory supporter of the early '80s. Now, I don't know if that really worked. I don't think Kenny could possibly be credited with winning that election for Margaret Thatcher. She seemed to have quite a solid base. She already had that pretty much time. I don't think it was was the Everett factor, as much as I liked him as a child. Right, so we've already had the big star guest. Now it's time for what I think is likely to become the big returning feature, the big hit of this election campaign. It is time, once again, to spin the wheel of coalition. Let's see what the wheel has come up for this time. And heavens above... I was hoping this one would come up. It's the Grand Coalition. So we've heard so much about Labour, SNP, Tory, UKIP, DUP. This is the big one. This is the one that's happened in Germany a few times. This is the two big parties, Labour and Conservative. They shut out the rest of them. And the two of them, in a spirit of cooperation, 
wouldn't be out of place in a 1970s Coke advert. Mm. They march into Downing Street together. It's nonsense, isn't it? It's never going to happen. Was it Kenneth Baker who recently suggested, I believe, he, he, he actually, I think, did some sort of report and suggested that, that might be helpful. And I, I think he was told by both sides that... Not in any way helpful. essentially a retired politician who used to be very important. Shut up. It's not going to happen. I mean, it's... It's never going to happen, is it? There's no conceivable way that that could happen. Even though, of course, on a number of policies, they are surprisingly closer, closer compared to some of the people they're going to have to do deals with. Having dropped their speeches in a puddle at Euston Station yes, exactly. and accidentally picked up the wrong ones, they do appear closer if than If you ever. were being pragmatic and sensible, it's not actually the most outrageous thing if if it was so ridiculously close, but of course it will never, ever happen. Because you'd have to divvy up the jobs. Oh, that'd be good fun. So, that'd be great fun to watch, though. You, you know, George Osborne or Ed Balls. What do we do? I mean, who's, who's Set up a webcam and listen to that conversation and laugh, I think, really. Yeah. You know, uh, Jeremy Hunt or Andy Burnham. Well, I suppose you'd have to have, say, you'd have to say, for argument's sake, that it was the Tories who had the most votes. Would you get, would it, would it be Cameron getting the Prime Minister's job, for argument's sake, Ed being deputy? Then would it, would you have to have a Labour Chancellor to even it out? You would have to do that, wouldn't you? I yeah, would imagine. The warped part of me would love to see it because of the sheer chaos and drama. It would be fascinating to watch it work. Well, we spun the wheel and uh, hopefully next and week... And agreed yet again it wouldn't happen. agreed yet again it would be a total disaster. <laughs> hopefully next week when we spin the wheel we'll come up with something that is actually in some way conceivable. This is about as accurate as what, you know, in terms of any election predictions presently anyway. You don't, need, you don't need a swingometer when you've got yeah. a rusty wheel. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I, I, I the bank loan to pay for that has been worth it. You know what? You know, election programmes are full of those techno-gizmos and paving stones to number 10 and landslides of gravel covering people up. Tin wheel. Tin yeah. wheel's all you need. They'll talk about this in years to come. In some context, anyway. <laughs> right, so there we go. That's uh, this week on the election campaign. Thank you very much for listening in the uh, show description-y thing on your iPhone or other phone that you may use. is the Twitter address to get in touch, so do let us know uh, if there's anything you'd like us to talk about. If you'd like us to just stop talking, uh, don't let us know. <laughs>